Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Great to, uh, great to have you this morning. And particularly if you are visiting on you, great to have you. And uh, look forward to connecting with you afterwards. Feel free to continue our conversations. It does get loud and rowdy here at the end of the service as people connect, which is always lovely. Hey, we are coming to the end of our Presence series today. And uh, I was originally uh, preparing and planning and deep into uh, uh, preparing a message on uh, bringing the presence of God into our home. Uh, And I just felt like I needed to change my message for today. Uh, I'm hoping to uh, preach that message uh, at some time in the next couple of months. Uh, But just felt uh, prompted because of the situation that we're in as a, a community and a nation and actually as a world that there was another message on my heart to preach, uh, calling, uh, still within this present series, uh, called Being the Presence of, uh, Being God's Presence in the World. Being God's Presence in the World. And I'm just asking the question, and this is a question for all of us, how do we be the presence of God in our world today? What does it look like to be the presence of God in a world that is in chaos and turmoil, and what difference should we and can we make in this world? What difference should we, can we make as a Christian community, as a church uh, in this world? Earlier on uh, this week, when I was preparing the other message, I asked our kids around the table, I said, Kids, How do we practice the presence? How do we practice presence in our home? And Olivia, her eyes just lit up. She was so excited. She said, Oh, I love presents at Christmas. I love presents at my birthday. And we just had to laugh and giggle a little bit uh, as she totally misread the situation, totally misunderstood the word presence. And so we had this funny exchange afterwards. We were saying, no, Olivia, it's a different spelling. It's P-R-E-S-E-N-T. Not, not, I mean, see it. Anyway, we got totally confused uh, in trying to explain it. And so we just gave up. So I will tell you in a few years' time. This is too much, the different meaning for presence and presence. Um, The crazy English language that we get to enjoy. But, (laughs) says says the Brazilian in the front row. But it got me thinking about actually our presence, CE, is actually a present gift in our world today. You know, we live in a a time in our culture, in our world, where we are seeing the presence of people always in decline. We are losing a sense of the personal presence in our city and in our culture. Now, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. Let me point really quickly to two. They're not new. You probably hear me bang on about these every time I preach. The first one is because of technology. You know, when I'm out and about, when I jump on transport, uh, public transport, whatever, and I'm the same, so I'm, this is not, I'm not uh, accusing anyone, but our eyes are down. And, and what that means is as we look down, 
firstly, it means that we're not looking up and making eye contact with others and, and therefore not giving the opportunity for human interaction. We're not actually providing the opportunity for the, for the nice hi or how you're doing or how you're going. We're actually removing the opportunity for personal presence. But secondly, we're actually reshaping our brain around technology, which is actually having implications on how actually we engage with others. We're actually losing the ability to be able to read emotions. The other, uh, the other thing that I, I think, the other big thing I think is, and again, I talk a lot about this, is that we live in a hyper-consumeristic age. And by that, we, we are so devoted to consumerism and marketers are telling us so much that it's all about us that we actually become self-focused. It's all about my personal experience. It's all about how I can be pleased because at the end of the day, it's all about me. And so what ends up happening is we end up turning in on ourselves. We become self-focused and consumed with what is going on in our world. Technology and consumerism are forcing us into a place of firstly isolation. We are becoming isolated we are isolating ourselves. And secondly, we're actually losing the ability to empathise. Because we are spending time with technology, because we're actually not engaging, we're actually losing the ability. There's a whole bunch of research and study with the emerging generations now that they are losing the ability to read emotions because everything is mediated through a screen. The, the, the emerging generations are unable to empathise and put themselves in the, the position of somebody else. And so we're losing this ability to presence ourselves. We're actually losing the ability to know what it means to be present. And as we all know, because now coronavirus is ubiquitous in our world, it's everywhere, uh, we are now surrounded with this unpre unprecedented sense of isolation and loneliness. But in this, I think the church has an opportunity to be a present, to be a gift through being Christ's presence in the world. Now, David Fitch, who wrote the book Faithful Presence, says this, Faithful Presence names the reality that God is present in the world and that he uses a people faithful to his presence to make himself concrete and real amid the world's struggles and pain. When the church is this faithful presence, God's kingdom becomes visible and the world is invited to join with God. As we become the visible presence of God in the world, we invite the world to join in. And that's what we're going to be exploring today. And we're going to jump into a passage in 1 John. Uh, 1 John chapter 3. It's a passage I've been sitting on for a few months now. It's spoken to my heart. And I'm believing that it will speak to us as a church community today about how we can be uh, the visible presence of Christ in our world today. It's 1, 1 John chapter 3. And we're starting at verse 16. So if you've got your Bible, feel free to open or your digital device or cast your eyes to the screen. This is what John writes in his first letter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest 
in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command. This is what it means to follow him, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, John uh, writes in quite a, pol a polemic style. If you track his uh, gospel uh, and then through his letters, he tends to use uh, two al alternate kind of ideas in polemic. And we see this particularly through his gospel. He talks about darkness and light, death and life, truth and lie, above and below, blindness and sight. But there is another polemic that may not be always immediately seen, but is there, and that is this world and the world of Christ, his world. This world and his world. And we see this um, littered throughout his writings, where he talks particularly about this world, and he talks about the kingdom or the world to come, Christ's kingdom. We see this in a confrontation that he has with Pilate in John's gospel. Uh, if you know the story, Jesus is brought before Pilate uh, for judgment. And there's this power encounter that takes place. And Jesus says this to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Jesus says, there is this world, but there is another place. There is another world. And we are called in both, to be in both worlds. We're called to be in this world, but actually we're called to be in another world. Or to use uh, language that we sometimes use, we're in the world, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're not of this world. Our citizenship is elsewhere. We have a different king. And so Jesus prays for his disciples later on in the Gospel of John and essentially says that. In John chapter 17, verse 15, he prays for his disciples and he prays for us. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So I want you to be in the world, but you are not of this world. You are bringing something different. You are bringing a different culture. And here's what I want as we, as we start this conversation this morning. Here's what I want to set up. Is that we can either reflect the posture, the attitude of this culture, this world, or we can reflect the posture and the attitude of Christ. And I think that's really relevant for us today. The invitation for us is to reflect the posture, the attitude of Christ as Jesus prayed for his disciples, rather than the posture and the attitude of our culture. There are two cultures and I actually think that as a church, more than ever before, we need to posture the attitude of Christ. 
As A.W. Tozer said, a frightened world needs a fearless church. So what does Christ's presence look like in us? What is the gift that we can bring to the world? Well, as we track through this passage in John, as John writes uh, his letter, I want to just look at three things as we look at our culture or the culture of Christ against the culture of this world. Firstly, it's sacrificial service over self. Secondly, it's peace over anxiety. And thirdly, it is hope over despair. Service over self, peace over anxiety, and hope over despair. Firstly, service over self. Sacrificial, loving service over self, over selfishness. Love is a nice idea, isn't it? Like we all like the idea of love. If you walk through the city now and you said, hey, do you think that we should become more loving? Do you think love is important in our society? I reckon 100% people would say yes. And a whole bunch of people would say, you know what? Love is all we need. We, we, love is the thing that we need. If we just had love, we'll be fine. Love is all we need. Unless you need toilet paper. Because then it's not love that's going to help you out. It's toilet paper. I'm not quite sure why. But we need toilet paper over love. Now listen, if we're going to quarantine, I'm just going to go and buy ice cream. Like why, why toilet paper? Ice cream is so much more delicious. Any amens in the room for that? Or chocolate. Ice cream and chocolate together. Together. All you need is love until everything falls to pieces. And then we get these breakouts of fighting in shopping centres. I love you until I need toilet paper. Now we might, we, we, might, we might laugh at that and we might go, oh my goodness, what's the world coming to? But if we're really honest with ourselves, we're kind of all the same. It would disgust us. But reality, when it comes down to it, when the pressure's on, when we're desperate for something, Often we put ourselves above the other. Love goes out the window. And we can call it looking after number one or protecting your own or fighting for equality or whatever it is. But really, it's, it's not love. And our world struggles to live with love. I struggle to live with love. This is expressed often when I'm driving. You know, I like to think I'm a loving person, that I'm chilled and nice until I'm in a hurry to get somewhere and somebody decides to go down the left-hand lane knowing it's a left-hand turn and try and cut in on the right. I'm not letting them in. I, no, no. I, there is no love. There is no loving the neighbour there, particularly when I'm in a hurry. Or when somebody does something wrong, you know, they, they cut in on me or they do something illegal or they annoy me. You know, the words or the thoughts of my life do not exhibit love. They exhibit something else. You know, actually, if we're really honest, we don't... That, yes, like that. You know, we, 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 are, we all have this disposition to put ourselves ahead of the other. But Jesus shows us what love is. And John articulates this in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, love is evidenced 
in sacrifice. Love is evidenced in self-sacrifice. We see that Jesus comes down and he dies for us. There is no greater sacrifice than God coming down from heaven to earth, humbling himself and sacrificing himself for us. This is the evidence of love. It's not just kind of poetry and words and nice thoughts and things on a card, you know. It's none of that. It's not sentimentality. It's sacrifice. That is where love is. And so John says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Mother Teresa says this, Love cannot remain by itself. It has no meaning. Love has to be put into action, and that action is service. And the challenge is, is that John just doesn't say, well, well, Jesus has loved us the end. He says, Jesus sacrificed himself for us, therefore, you need to go and do the same. And it's interesting that he uses a, 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 an example. He says, if anyone has material possessions like toilet paper, and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? There is this material uh, possession thing that, that John is focusing on. Why? Because he knows that that is probably what's of the highest value in people's hearts. What he's addressing is our idols, the things that trigger us the most. The things that are most deepest to us, the things that constitute us, the things that if they were taken away from us, we would feel ripped off. And John intentionally goes for that, material possessions. He goes, hey, this might be an idol for you, but if you want to express love, this is how you sacrifice. Now, it may not just be material possessions. It could be our time, our talents, our skills, whatever it is. But what John is doing is he's attacking the things that constitute us, the things that we see as most valuable in our lives. And he says, if you see somebody who's without, that is where you sacrificially exhibit, express your love. That is love in action. And as we do this, as we do this as a church, as we go, you know what, we want to give or we want to sacrifice ourselves to one another and for the greater good of our city, our nation and our world, we will proclaim the presence of Christ. We will be proclaiming the sacrificial, loving nature of Jesus. The church becomes his sacrificial, loving presence. People will get a taste They'll get a taste of who Jesus is as they encounter us, as we sacrificially love, as we don't live trying to hoard and live for ourselves. This is the picture of the early church. It's one of the main reasons why the early church won over the Roman Empire. We read this from Eusebius, who was a, a, a bishop uh, and, uh, in the early church, and he records this. All day long, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, and to their burial. countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and, and distributed bread to them all. There, that is the Christians, deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. 
The Christians gave human dignity to those who were broken in a context and a culture where dignity was not given. And you read throughout the, early, the earlier centuries of how the Roman Empire was, was confounded by the work of the Christians. You know, at a time when welfare and social security and healthcare plans did not exist, the church was essential in providing aid. They looked after not only their own, but those outside their community as well. The Roman emperors recognised that Christians filled a role and they, that they were not effectively filling. And individuals were attracted to the security the church afforded and likely curious about what it was that inspired such sacrificial generosity. Now, I believe that we have an opportunity as a church. I believe we have an opportunity as a church to love those most in need, to exhibit to our world that actually our identity, our hope and our joy is exhibited in sacrificial love. We're invited to love our city. You know, in this context, in this time with COVID-19, what are the ways in which we can be a blessing to those around us? One of those might be to self-isolate. That actually might be one loving thing that you can do. But do you know your neighbours? Have you checked up on your neighbours? If they get sick or if they're isolated, can you cook a meal for them? Can you go out and reach out to them? Can you love them? What are the ways in which we as a church can look after the most vulnerable? What are the ways in which we can extend a hand to those who are most vulnerable to this crisis? The elderly, those who are suffering from pre-existing conditions. What is God inviting us to do as a church to love our city? You know, I'm really excited that next term we are going to be launching Gateway City Care, which is designed to reach out to those who are most vulnerable in our city. And it's been so exciting to see so many of you excited and engaged in working with Robin to see that happen. I'm so excited for Thursday mornings next term to see people invited in just to connect, to enjoy the presence of people in this church and to hear ways in which they can improve their life, ways in which we can reach out to those most in needy. We have an opportunity to love our city, but we also have an opportunity to love one another. Again, David Fitch, who wrote Faithful Presence, writes this. Faithful presence, I contend, must therefore be a communal reality before it can infect the world. It must take shape as a whole way of life in a people. From this social space, we infect the world for change. Here we give witness to the kingdom breaking in and invite the world to join in. We are called to be, and he didn't, Obviously, he didn't write that around this time, you know, using the word infect there. But, but actually, there is something that we can do, which uh, uh, just an infection of love. And we are inviting people into something that is profound, that is wonderful, that can impact our community and our culture. And it's seen as we love one another. It's been really cool just to, to start life groups this term. And I want to say, if you're not yet in a life group, we're still trying to find leaders. And let me tell you, can I just say that leading a life group is not as scary as you think. Think of it more as facilitating or getting other people to do things. Um, seriously, the best life group leaders uh, are the ones that actually are able to share the load. So this is about loving one another. We need more life group leaders. We need more life groups. And, uh, and, and so if you're not in a life group yet, can you please fill in a connect card? Come and see me. Uh, go up and connect with the welcome team at the back. Um, 
We'd love to help you get connected in. And we'd also love to hear from you if you think that you could actually facilitate a group because we need more. We don't have enough facilitators, leaders yet, to facilitate all the people in need. But that is one way. As the world looks on, as we love one another, as we care for one another, particularly in this season, we care for one another in our community. And as we do so, we will shout out to the world, hey, there is something better. There is something greater. There is something more meaningful. There is a presence that you can be part of. John writes that we are called to offer service over selfishness. That is one way in which we can proclaim the presence of God to our world. Secondly, it's his peace that fills us in a world full of anxiety. Peace over anxiety. Now John writes, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him everything we ask because we keep His commands and do what He pleases. There's this sense of certainty and confidence that, that John writes about. Now I reckon anxiety arises from a sense of not being in control. This sense of actually not, not knowing the future. Not actually knowing, uh, not being in control of everything that is to come. And anxiety arises. Again, I find this with driving. You know, most of the, the conflict, well not, yeah, I'd say, between Megan and I in the car happens over map reading. We fight over maps. There is something, but Megan, but Megan is incredibly gracious with me. I like being in control. It's something that the Lord is working on my heart about. Megan is incredibly gracious in letting me drive. Most of the time, uh, I will drive. And it's just, for me, it's this sense of being in control. And, uh, and there have been times when I've had to relinquish control and it is not easy. When we first moved back, I moved from the UK, Megan didn't have, well, she had a license, she had an American license, but Megan had never driven with a, in a, with a manual car. And so I had to be Megan's instructor. I had to sit in the passenger seat and let Megan learn how to drive with him in a manual car and get the whole clutch control thing happening. It was a nightmare. I am the worst teacher in the world. And Megan just, I think, I think what ended up happening, Megan, it was that Megan just kicked me out of the car and said, you are useless. You are taking control. I can't do this. Get out of the car. I will do it myself. And so I'm incredibly worried about when our kids grow up. And I think Megan's going to have to teach all our kids because I just get the shakes. I'm not in control. I get all, I freak out. And the reality is I think anxiety arises when we're not in control, when we don't feel like we're in control. Anxiety arises when we try to control our circumstances and when we make ourselves sovereign over our life and our destiny. See, anxiety arises out of this sense of desiring to be in control. Why do we long for controls? Because we actually want to be sovereign over our life and over our destiny. We want to be sovereign over our life and our destiny. And that's why I think when we, we were watching panic buying at the moment, it's because we're actually afraid of the future. There is this sense of deep anxiety that comes because we're no longer in control. But we need to come to acknowledgement, this is the invitation of the, of the Christian faith, is that we aren't in control. We're not in control. 
We've never been in control. But God is in control. God is in control. John writes, this is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest, how we know that peace in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. He's omniscient, to use the big theological word. He, he knows everything and we can go to him. He is greater than anything that goes on in this world. We can acknowledge him. We can find peace in him because he is greater. He is stronger than anything that happens in this world. If you knew that a cyclone was coming, where would you find peace and rest? It wouldn't be in a tent because the tent is not greater than the cyclone. You would go to a shelter that is built stronger than the winds of the cyclone. And in the same way, we can find peace in God who is sovereign because he is greater than the storms of our life. That is where we find peace. We find peace in God who is greater than all things. He's greater than anything. He's greater than everything. We can find peace in him. But it's, it's hard sometimes as we talk about the sovereignty of God. It's difficult to understand, well, is this God just distant? Is he, is he angry? Is he separate? And that is the objection that many people have, particularly when things go wrong and when we go through pain. We find peace in a sovereign God, but we also find peace, and John points us out, in a gracious God. The reason that we can find peace in a sovereign God is because we, we, we see a God who is a sacrificial God. A God who steps out of heaven and comes down to earth and dies for us. And that is why our hearts don't condemn us. That's why John says, if your heart condemns you, know that he is greater than your heart and he knows everything. He knows your heart. He's seen everything you've done. He's seen all your sins. He's seen all your brokenness. He knows everything. And you know what he says? Forgiven. Forgiven. He sees all and he's wiped the slate clean. Therefore, our hearts don't condemn us. We can find peace in a God who is both sovereign and sacrificial, who is gracious to us. But it's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling to come and say, I actually can't fix this. I can't do it. I can't sort myself out. But when we humble ourselves, we are liberated. Mother Teresa again says this, if you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. And there is a humility that comes coming before the sovereign and gracious God and accepting his grace and his security. But it is an acceptance that is based, it's a humbling that is based on faith and not feeling. It's a knowing in spite of the anxiety. It's, an, it's not an emotion, it's, it's a posture of the heart. It's not a feeling, but it's an act of faith. We will go through times of fear of anxiety. I know that in this next season, however long it goes for, that we will go through seasons of fear and anxiety. But that is not our determining truth. 
we take hold of the, of the truth that God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is kind, that he is gracious, that he is loving. And it's a step of faith. And as we do that, this is kind of the word that I've had for us as a church. As we walk in his peace, as we find security in him, no matter what's going, going on, we will be a peaceful presence in our world. We will be a peaceful presence in our city. We have received peace. We come with a different posture to culture. We come with the posture of Christ. And as John says in chapter 14, again, as he prays for his disciples, he says, peace I live with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Megan read it before. Being in the presence of Jesus gives us an ability to be able to sacrificially love. It enables us to know peace. And thirdly, it gives us a posture of hope. It gives us hope over despair. Hope over despair. You know, we live in a culture of despair. Why is that? Because everything is about the now. We live in a culture that is obsessed with youth. We live in a culture that is obsessed with experience and doing everything now. It's all about the now. And it has rejected the transcendent and it has ignored the eternal. Even if people will say, yeah, I believe in the afterlife or yeah, I believe in eternal life or whatever it is, they don't live like it. They don't live like it. They don't believe it. Our culture does not have the mechanics for dealing with death and what follows. Uh, Gordon Wenham, the theologian, uh, says this about our consumeristic culture. Consumerism fo uh, focuses entirely on this world and its pleasures, so that death itself is the ultimate disproof of all that consumers hold dear. It may be for this reason that in our reality, death is the great taboo topic that people really, rarely talk about. When it happens to someone near them, they try to pretend that it, is not that it has not happened. See, our fear of death as a culture, our despair as a culture is rooted in our cultural rejection of God. We've rejected God and so we live with this despair. There is no eternal hope. But in Christ, there is hope. There is eternal hope. John affirms this reality in the, in the previous chapter, John 1 John chapter 2. He says this, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We have this hope in us. And John says in the last few verses that we read in chapter three, that actually we can know his spirit. His spirit testifies to us that we are in the presence of God. And throughout John's writings, he is always talking about the fact that we have this hope, which is eternal. We have this eternal hope. Hope is the one who defeated death. Hope is found in the one who has overcome death and invites us into that same reality. And so John says that if we are in Christ, we have His life. We have His Spirit. We have His hope for the eternal. And that changes everything. It changes our lives, our interactions, the way we live, work, speak, invest our resources. They should all proclaim our radical hope in Christ and our eternal life in Him. Everything we do 
should live in the light of the fact that we will live forever with Christ. That this life is just a mere blip on all of eternity. I think as we live in this way, if we, as we live with sacrificial love, as we live with peace and we live with hope, we will give our city, our nation, our world a gift. The gift of the presence of God. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.